If you had a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, we're going to be in 10, 12 through 13 for the beginning tonight. I've got a couple of places we'll be, um, but the, all those are on your notes tonight um, for reference in case you can't pull it up in time. Uh, but if you're new with us, we have been going through a series that we've been calling True Faults, looking about lies about God that sound like the truth. And we are actually wrapping up this series this week. This is the eighth week. In this, hard to believe this is the ninth college Bible study we've had this semester, almost in double digits at this point. Um, but we're going to wrap up the series tonight by talking about the last lie of the series, and it's the lie that God won't give you more than you can handle. God won't give you more than you can handle. How many of y'all have heard this pretty frequently in your life, Christian life? Yeah, it's a pretty common phrase uh, in, in the church and Christian world. It probably gets put on Facebook and Instagram with some flowery background, you know, or some cute sunset or something, you know, like that. Uh, but it gets used a lot, you know, in an attempt to comfort people who are going through a lot. It could be stress. It could be a loss. It could be a tragedy. You know, surely many a family at a funeral has heard uh, this uh, in a time of just real struggle. Maybe a sick person in the hospital. Uh, we have multiple accounts of those things at our church right now. I'm sure people like that are struggling. Maybe I've heard this kind of thing uh, before. And some people would say that this phrase is actually biblical, that there's a good biblical precedent for that. And I would disagree, uh, but tonight we're going to look at this phrase and see exactly what it may mean, and then we're going to kind of let it lead us into a conversation I think is very helpful for us tonight. So the pl- first place we're going to begin is in 1 Corinthians 10, in verses 12 through 13. This is kind of the place that people will say, hey, this is in the Bible. It's right here in this text. And uh, so I want us to look at that and see, does it really say that? And if it doesn't, then what is it saying? So let's read this together real quick. And then uh, we'll talk about it for a minute. So 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13, it'll also be on the screen. All my references tonight will be on the screen as well. It says this, it says, therefore, uh, let, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's great advice in general about pride. But then he says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So that's the passage that people usually kind of say this idea would come from. And they would maybe look at that phrase that says, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Say, well, in in this, in the Bible, you know, and here's the deal, you know, from a surface reading that might seem like it's true, that this phrase is biblical, but as always, it's not that simple. And as always, this is a great principle of biblical interpretation that context is king in all times we interpret the Bible, right? You can take any random line from any piece of literature, right, and make it say a lot of things, a couple of sentences. But context is key in this text as well. Because if you look at 1 Corinthians 10 in the big picture chapter, like if you were to skim it for a minute, you're going to find that the Apostle Paul is talking about how the people of Israel during their time in the wilderness gave in to the temptation that was presented to them and they sinned. And what he's doing is he's using that lesson of the Jewish people in the wilderness as a lesson for the Corinthian church of things not to do. And you get a little bit of the idea from the verses we read, but really Paul in these verses, he's talking specifically about the temptation to sin. He's talking about temptation to sin and specifically he talks about the temptation for sexual sin, the sin of complaining against God, the sin of idolatry, all those kind of sins and the temptations to do those things are in context. And so in light of that, what Paul says about temptation to sin is what we see in these verses is that Paul says that anytime we're tempted to sin, there's a way out. 
that we have a means of escape. And you, and you got to imagine that Paul probably has uh, like the story of Joseph in mind. If you remember that story from the Bible, uh, Joseph who was appointed as a kind of the right-hand man to one of the most powerful people in Egypt. Um, and that guy was named Potiphar, and his wife was a little bit loose, and at one point was tempting Joseph to sleep with her. And at one point, he kind of catch, she catches him off guard alone at their house cleaning or something at one point. And she is tempting him, and he literally, like, runs away. She grabs, like, his robe, and, like, he runs away naked <laughs> from the, the house, which is humorous in itself. But he was that, you know, ambitious and that determined to escape the temptation. you got to imagine Paul probably has that fleeing in mind, you know. But even in that moment, he, that God provided a way out to him. But the issue is this, is that we see the, the context in 1 Corinthians 10 is that Paul's talking about temptation, right? But if we take temptation... And the context there and remove that and simply apply what Paul says in these verses to general suffering in life, then it's really easy to get this idea, right, that God won't allow us to be, you know, to, God won't give us more than we can handle. But honestly, I think there's a lot wrong with that phrase, and we'll get into some of it tonight, but let me give you like three quick reasons. They're not on your notes, but just three kind of simple reasons. I don't think this phrase is helpful. Number one, it's discouraging. It's kind of a guilt trip kind of idea. What I mean by that, it's, it's discouraging because it says this, that, hey, you know what? Like, if you're not able to handle what you're dealing with in life right now, then I guess it's your fault because you must be a lousy Christian because God's not going to give you more than you can handle, right? So if you can't deal with it, you just must be a lousy Christian. It's a guilt trip kind of thing, right? It says that you're not enough and it's your fault. It's not very helpful. It's discouraging. It's kind of self-defeating. So at first, it's discouraging. Second, it's self-centered, Right? Because it says that God won't give you more than you can handle, right? It's self-centered. So the focus is on your own ability to handle things, right? Not God's ability. And so what it does is it does what we talked about a couple weeks ago, like Disney, Disney theology, where like the answer is inside of you. I like just follow your heart, you know, let it go, no rules, whatever for me. I forget the song now. It's been out so long, you know, no wrong, no right, no rules for me. Sorry, Elsa, that's bad theology. Um, But, you know, it's dizzy theology. It tells us to look inside of our hearts to find the answer. And really, that's just not helpful. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. This idea makes us look further into ourselves instead of outside of ourselves for help, which is what the Bible would tell us to do. And then third thing, so it's discouraging, it's self-centered. It's also just dismissive of God, honestly. Because if we're supposed to be able to handle everything that's handed to us in life, then why do we really need God? Like if we can do it, do it on our own, if we're enough on our own, then why would we honestly even need God if we can handle it on our own? So it's discouraging, it's self-centered, and it's dismissive of God. I think it's just not a very helpful phrase. But you know, even though people who use the phrase, they many times mean well, and if you've used it to comfort somebody, I'm not guilt-tripping you at all. Um, but as we mean well sometimes in this, you know, and we're trying to comfort people and help them with their burden, ultimately the phrase isn't true and it's not helpful. And remember a few weeks ago we talked about Job's friends, and Job's friends meant really well when they were trying to comfort Job, but in the end they just kind of babbled some nonsense about God for chapter, <laughs> chapter over chapter. The same thing can be true here is that we got to think about what this means and is it really true and is it helpful for us. So what we're going to do for the rest of our time tonight, though, is this, is that this phrase really brings up a really important question, you know, some really important questions about God, and specifically three things. How does God, uh, what, is, what role does God have in our temptations, our troubles, and our trials? I like that three T's. I worked really hard on it for y'all for that, okay? But ro- what role does God have in our temptations, our troubles, and our trials? Because if God does give us more than we can handle, why would he do that? And, you know, is God cruel in doing that? Does he care if he gives us more than we can handle? 
And so tonight we're going to look at these three things, how we, three things we kind of handle in life sometimes, these temptations, these troubles, and these trials. Okay, that's kind of our plan for the evening. All right, so first thing let's talk about, let's talk about temptations with God. The first principle we want to see, and this is on your sheet, is that God doesn't tempt us. All right, God does not tempt us. If you want to look it up, we got James 1, 13 through 15. It will also be on the screen. But James 1, uh, our guys and girls in life groups are going through James I think by this point, they've probably gotten through this verse. <laughs> it's in the first chapter, so I think you guys have gotten through it at this point. So our life groups have been talking about this, um, but this is a great verse for this. It says this, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James makes it really clear that God never tempts us to sin, that God hates sin, that sin goes against his nature. God would never lure us into something that goes against what he wants us to do in life, the way he wants us to live. But instead, what does James say? He says, our temptations come from where? From within, right? It comes from us. And kind of classically in theology, it's sometimes talked about that there's like three sources of temptation. You have Satan, you have, well, you have sin, you have Satan and the world. That's kind of a classical a thing about it, but you know, Satan definitely tempts us to sin. Uh, you know, I've heard it said before that Satan, this is an analogy, it's probably not 100% true, but Satan has like a filing cabinet in hell, and in the filing cabinet, there, every person has a file, and in their file is written down all the things that the devil knows he can, he can get to you with, all the weaknesses that you have, and I've been asked before, what do you think is on your file? Like, what kind of game plan does the, Satan have to get to you? And it's kind of a funny, you know, picture. I, I imagine Satan with the office, and it's that's kind of a weird thought, but the, I think the point is good. Like, what specific things that would Satan maybe use in your file to get to you? We all have different weaknesses and areas that we're tempted, you know, so it's a good th- thing to think about. But we have Satan that tempts us. We also have worldly culture, you know, I'm not talking about the world in general, but worldly culture definitely has a bent towards sin, and it tempts us as well, you know. Um, it has all kinds of things that try to appease our sinful desires, our sinful cravings. But ultimately, Satan and the world really are appealing to the own sinful desires that we have in our own hearts. And as James says, the temptation that we have to sin ultimately comes from within, doesn't come just from external. Actually, Islam teaches that sinful temptation is 100% from outside, which is why like jihad exists, because they want to eliminate the temptation to sin against their beliefs by eliminating all the forms and culture that would tempt them away from Islam. That's why they view that. They want to get rid of the temptation on the outside because the inside they believe is good. Now, for us as Christians, we'd say, no, sin distorts our hearts, so therefore, we have to deal with our own hearts, not simply the external things. That's your random world religions moment for tonight, okay? Um, That was free, okay? So, but ultimately, all our temptations come from our own sinful desires, according to James. And he uses this picture that if you're a fisherman, any fisherman in the room, anybody fish very much? Okay, we have like Luke, he's the resident fisherman in the room, thank you. I don't fish, so I don't, I can't speak into this very well besides what the Bible says. But, um, but he uses a picture of like a fisherman who's fishing for a fish and the fish is tempted by the lure, right? You know, and, or the, the hook. And you don't just normally throw a hook, at least I don't think so. You don't normally just throw a hook in the water and leave the, the bare hook dangling, right? Like fish don't really get attracted to a just middle hook in the water. What do they, what do they put on it? They put bait, right? To make the, the lure, the hook look more tempting for the fish. And then they bite it and then they get hooked, and then you go from there, right? And so what James says is this, is that temptation on the outside is almost always going to look good. That Satan is very rarely going to tempt us in a way that just says, hey, you should sin. 
Like you should just do something outright terrible. You should like sell meth to third graders in your backyard. That's a great idea. You know, I do that. He's never going to give us like this terrible picture of, hey, do this. He's always going to present us with something that looks really good. It appeals to our flesh. It probably even appeals to that filing cabinet file he has on us for what he thinks is going to get to us. Temptation always appears good at first, but what happens when you give, when you give in? There's a hook, right? There's a hook that then takes you, as the old saying goes, way farther than you want to go, right? That, that temptation drags you way farther to where you end up, end up doing things you never thought you would do because you got hooked with the temptation. And as James says, it gives birth to sin and eventually leads to death. We don't think about that when we're initially tempted with something, you know, but at the same time, that's what can happen. And that's the way Satan wants it to work. He wants sin to look good at first. He wants us to think it doesn't hurt anybody else or it's just between you and your, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend. He wants to think it's you and, between you and the computer. He wants to think it's just a, a test that no one knows you're cheating on, whatever. He wants you to think it's just something between you and nobody else or whatever. It always looks good and easy and comfortable and convenient at first. But then before you know it, there's a lot more consequences. Before you know it, it gives birth to sin and death. He always wants it to look good and easy and tempting. And it's important to know first off, or not first off, but next off, that temptation in itself is not a sin. I know people that feel guilty sometimes because they, they are tempted in certain ways. But it's important to know the Bible never says that temptation in and of itself is a sin because Jesus was tempted, right? In many ways, he literally was in the wilderness for 40 days. At the end of that, he was tempted by Satan. So temptation in and of itself is not a sin, but it's obviously giving into the temptation that becomes a sin. It's how we respond to it that matters. But these verses make it clear that sin is something that is seeking us out and it's seeking to destroy us. Just consider the story of Cain and Abel, you know, in Genesis 4, that Cain is upset at his, at his brother Abel and he's kind of plotting maybe in his heart to murder his brother. And what does God tell him? God tells him, hey, Cain, sin is crouching at the door, at your door of your life. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's how we have to respond to temptation and sin. We have to rule over it, not let it rule over us. But the truth is that outside of Christ, every person is ruled by sin. That the book of Romans makes it clear that everyone outside of Christ is a slave to sin. But the good news of the gospel is that if you're in Christ, you're not a slave to sin, but sin is actually resistible for you. That sin is, ir sin is not irresistible. That as a Christian, you can resist sin. Like we said in Romans, the one of the big points he's made so far in the book, we, we've been studying Romans on Sunday mornings here in table groups. We'd love to have you come at 9.30 on Sunday mornings if you're not joining us. But we've been talking about that. And one of Paul's big points is that if you're in Christ, you're not a slave to sin anymore, but you are a slave to righteousness, which means that sin no longer has control over you. You may not be free from sin's presence in your life. You're definitely not free from its presence, but you are free from its power and its control over you. That you'll be tempted by sin, but in Christ, you always have the ability to say no. I've heard it said before that sin will always call, but you don't have to pick up the phone. That the, the phone will ring, but we don't have to answer. We don't have to say yes to it. We have the power to say no. But the thing is, that power cannot come from us. That on our own, we're weak. It has to come from Christ. So if you want to resist temptation... It can't be just a matter of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and will it into existence. No, the power to say no to temptation has to come from outside of yourself. So for that to happen, you didn't have to fill yourself with Christ. That you cannot find the power in and of yourself, but instead you have to fill yourself with Christ. You got to spend time in his word, memorizing it, studying it, meditating on it, getting it into your bones. So that as... as the Psalms say, I've meditated, I've, you know, gosh, I can't even, up here I can't even quote the verse, but you know, I have a... Uh, 
what is the verse he would say that I, that I might not sin against you? There's something before that. What is it? it? There you go. Yeah, I've hidden your word in my heart. Thank you. That I might not sin. Thank you. Yeah, when you get up here and you're trying to quote it off the top of your head, you forget things sometimes. So I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's fuel for that. Thank you, Madeline. Um, but also not just his, his word, but prayer. That we spend time hearing from God in prayer, talking to him in prayer. Also, we spend time with his people that, you know, we think sometimes church is just an event we go to, but the church is more than a building and an event. It's people, and those people play a huge role in influencing us away from sin and toward Christ. Studies show that you are a, you know, combination of the five people that are closest to you. That if you have five people in your life that are your closest friends that aren't living for Jesus, you're probably not going to live very well for Jesus either. That you have to surround yourself with some close friends that follow Christ. You can absolutely and should have non-Christian friends, but the community that you have is going to play a big role in the way that you deal with sin or just let it into your life. And lastly, you got to remember to preach the gospel to yourself every day. That even as we fill ourselves with Christ through spiritual disciplines, you know, Bible, prayer, things like that, you have to also be preaching the gospel to yourself, remembering who you are in Christ, remembering what he's done for you. And lastly, you can put boundaries in place, you know, and those things can be very helpful when it comes to fighting temptation, depending on what the temptation is. You know, you can have different that ways you cut off access to stuff that's tempting you or different accountability partners or whatever. But the important thing is remember is that in temptation, boundaries only go so far because ultimately what is the source of temptation? It's, it's our hearts inside of us. And so we can put all kinds of filters on our phones and have friends who ask us questions each week and things like that. But if we don't deal with our heart and the heart issue that leads us to sin, we're only gonna be simply you know, putting up barriers that we can easily probably find a way around some way. It has to start with our heart and then work the barriers outside from there. Okay, so that's the first thing about temptation is that, you know, it's not a sin to be tempted, but for a Christian, sin is not irresistible, but it is possible to resist it in Christ. Okay, so that's the first T here. Second one is this, and these last two are a little bit more connected. Uh, So God does not tempt us. Also, God does not trouble us. Notice I put trouble in quotes because for alliteration's sake, trouble works, but really I need to explain what that means, all right? So when I say trouble, I don't mean like God doesn't inconvenience us, because <laughs> he definitely inconveniences us if you want to like, think about it that way. You know, he call, Christ calls us to do what? To die to ourselves. That's kind of inconvenient if you think about it from a selfish perspective. So I'm not talking about inconvenience, okay? Um, when I say trouble, I'm talking about suffering in life. The you know, suffering we face in life, especially the things that we don't bring onto ourselves, you know, we give in to sin that sometimes brings trouble that we brought onto ourselves. I'm talking about the suffering in our life that we don't necessarily ask for. You know, tragedies, you know, loss, pain, things like that. And we could spend a whole series talking about a theology of suffering. We won't do that this year. Um, but I want to give you a quick overview for just a minute about how we can think about God and suffering and how that fits together. And that'll lead us into our last point too, I think, well. So I gave you, I think, four things on there that are really helpful. There are kind of four principles I want to point out. The first is this, is first, God promises trouble in this world, even to the point that we feel overwhelmed. So God promises trouble. Let me just give you a kind of biblical overview of this. You know, in Genesis 3, when sin first enters the world, God curses the ground because of sin. That may seem kind of random, like the ground specifically, but really what's happening there is God is cursing all of creation because of sin. That means that because of sin, the world is broken, that the world doesn't run the way it's supposed to. That's why we have hurricanes, you know, in the Gulf. That's why we have wildfires and, all, and that's why we have cancer. That's why we have COVID. It's because the brokenness of sin in the world. You know, it's, so bad things happen to all of us because of the brokenness of the world. And the thing is, the Bible is very honest about the brokenness of the world and how that sometimes will lead us to feel very overwhelmed. 
The Bible's full of examples of this. Just read the Psalms, you'll find plenty of them. That David, I love him because he's like gut level honest about how life for him was just rough sometimes. And he cried out to God and was very honest over and over again about the difficult things he was facing and how he was despairing. I mean, consider Psalm 13, that David says to God, and hey God, unless you help me, I'm gonna die. Like I'm gonna sleep in the sleep of death. Like that sounds pretty like overwhelmed to me, but he's done. And Paul, you know, the, probably the, the strongest super Christian we ever could think of, you know, in the history of Christianity, Paul makes it super clear that in his life, in 2 Corinthians, his life was super difficult. And he felt very overwhelmed at times that he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned. He um, was often hungry and homeless. And on top of all that stuff, he also had this burden and anxiety on him all the time to take care of the churches that he oversaw, that he planted, and we kind of helping to get the elders in place. I mean, the man was very overwhelmed. He was given way more than he could quote unquote handle on his own. And Paul expressed that in 2 Corinthians very clearly. Jesus himself, the son of God, prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, literally, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. That Jesus himself felt overwhelmed, felt stressed, where he sweated drops of blood. So the Bible is really gut level honest that life's going to be hard. And it's really honest that we're going to feel overwhelmed. And that's, you know, not what God wants, but it's okay. It's going to happen in life. It's part of life. So it's refreshing to know that. And it's refreshing to know that, that the Bible doesn't ask us to pretend that life is just kind of, you know, unicorns and rainbows. You know, that when you become a Christian, it suddenly just get really easy. Honestly, it gets harder. And that's what the second point here of suffering is that the world will be even more troublesome for Christians. I'll give you two verses to make this really clear. 2 Timothy 3.12, it's on the screen. says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I just love how bold he is. He's like, yeah, you will be persecuted. <laughs> He's just straight up with you. And then John 16.33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Some translations say trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus is honest that, listen, you're going to have trouble in the world, but take heart. I've overcome it. And so since Christians are not of this world, we're going to live in a way that probably points people to the reality of the gospel, the reality of sin, and we're going to be hated by the world in many ways because of it. We'll be persecuted. You know, and that can look different in different places. You know, persecution here looks a lot different than it looks in like China, things like that. You know, but the general principle is that the Bible promises life will be harder for Christians because they live in a world that's not their home. They live in a world that is moving in a direction away from God, not toward him. And so if you ever, you know, lead someone to become a Christian, don't dare tell them, hey, your life's going to be great and easy now. <laughs> It'll probably be harder in some ways, you know, because of this truth. But God has a purpose in it. The third thing here, and this is an important theological thing to mention for a second, that God is not the, e the author of trouble. He's not the author of evil and suffering. And let me unpack this for just a second. So consider Isaiah 6. You know, it's a kind of classic text that the prophet Isaiah gets this vision of God in his throne room in heaven. He gets this vision and around the throne of God are these angelic beings. They're crazy looking. They have eyes all over them. It's, it's a really trippy thing, but there's these angelic beings. They're flying around God and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And there's a lot we can learn in that, but in that text, we get this picture that God is a God that's very unique, that he's a God that is pure, he's good, he's holy, and he's sovereign. He's in control of all things. And then we look at Genesis 1, we see that God, who is that God who's holy, pure, sovereign, all those things, he creates the world. And he called it what? 
He called it good. He called it good. He said this world is good. It was a place of no bad thing. No bad thing. And the world only becomes broken, like we mentioned. It only becomes full of evil and suffering because of humanity's rebellion against God. It only becomes broken because of sin. And now God in his wisdom does this. He allows suffering to exist in the world, but he's not the author of it. He doesn't actively, so he doesn't ultimately will it. He doesn't ultimately desire for it to exist. But here's the hard question that people have asked for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why would a God that's all powerful and a God that's all good allow sin and evil to exist in the world? Why would God allow the fall to happen? Why would he allow these things to happen? Well, I, I can't give you, you know, like a perfect answer. That's probably the hardest question to answer in Christianity. You know, it's so debated in apologetics, they give it its own word. It's called a theodicy, not the odyssey, like the book or whatever, but theodicy. Um, it's got its own word. It's such a debated and hard question. Um, but here's the deal. God knew from the very beginning of time that we would rebel against him, but he created us anyway. He allowed us to exist and to rebel anyway. And Why? Well, I'll give you two options to consider. This may not satisfy all your questions, but let me just give you two options that I think are helpful, although they can give more questions to you, but we won't get into all that tonight. But here's two options to think about why would God allow evil and suffering to happen. Number one, God knew that sin entering in the world would bring him the most glory, and it would create the kind of people best suited to worship him. So he allowed the world to be broken because he knew that it would ultimately be best and bring him the most glory if the world was broken and then redeemed by his love in Christ. You know, it's like in a similar way that any good story has conflict and resolution. The best stories have that, that God knew in his grand story, the best story would be for the world to be broken and then redeemed by him. And he allowed that to happen in his sovereignty. That's one option. Another option you could think about is that because God is a God of love, and he wants his creation to experience the kind of love that he is. You know, but in order for us to be able to, tr- to truly love him, we had to have free will. So he allowed us to choose to obey him or not. Because love always involves a choice. If you force somebody to love you, it's not love, right? That's not how love works. God wants people, not robots. So he gave us free will because love always involves choice. And he allowed us to choose to rebel against him, even though he knew we would do that. Even though he knew that we would rebel against him, he still allowed us to choose because he wants people, not robots, and he wants us to be able to love him in a full way, which has to involve choice. It can't involve being a robot. So you may have a lot of questions that go along with that. That's fine, but that's just two options that many people have proposed about why God would allow evil and suffering. And that's okay. I can give you a list of about 25 books to go read, and you can write me a paper about it, and we can, we can chat, okay? You can go to seminary and do that too, all right? <laughs> but, um, but the point is that God is not the author of evil and suffering, Yet, God does have a purpose and a use for suffering in the world, which we'll get to in our last point in a moment. But one more thing under this, and then we'll get to point number three, is the fourth thing in here is that God will one day destroy all forms of evil and suffering. He will destroy sin, evil, and death. Because the Bible makes it very clear that in God's story, he's writing, that the end of his story has a good ending, that one day Christ will return. And one day he will destroy all sin, all evil. He will destroy death. Revelation 21 makes this very clear. It describes a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more mourning, like M-O-U, not mourning like mourning, right? No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. It says because the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away. Now God in his justice, he will punish evil and sin by punishing sinners, those who don't turn to Christ. 
But at the same time, he is currently being patient with every person, hoping that they come to repentance, giving them time to come to repentance. That's straight Bible. So God is just and he's good. He's, no, he's by no means going to let suffering be meaningless. And, he's no, and by no means going to let evil go unpunished. He's a God of justice. He's a God of pure justice. And so thankfully, thankfully for those of us in Christ, our punishment for our evil has been placed on Jesus. He took on the punishment for our sin on the cross so that we don't have to take on that punishment. But God is completely just. He will by no means let sin go unpunished, which is ultimately a good thing because we want a God who is just, who is righteous, not a God who, who sweeps sin, sweeps evil under the rug. Because then that's a God that's not just. It's a God that allows evil to go unpunished. Ultimately, we don't desire that kind of God at all. So that's the second thing about God and trouble. But here's the third point for tonight, and this is where we'll be done, is that God does test us through suffering. He tests us through suffering. So what do I mean by testing? Well, I, I mean it in the way that the Bible usually uses this word, not necessarily like a test like you fill out, you know, like in your classes, but I mean it in the sense that many biblical writers do. I'll give you an example. It's all over the Bible, but First um, Peter is a good one. First Peter 1, 6 through 7, it says this. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the kind of testing we're talking about is like the testing of precious metals. I've never done blacksmith work. I can't verify this like, you know, from her first-hand experience, but I've been told that the way you test precious metals and refine them is by heating them up, you know, by hammering them and bending them into a certain shape. And many times as you are refining them and heating them up and purifying them, you know, that you have this process where you heat it up and the impurities in the metal rise to the top and they kind of sweep it off. It's called dross. There's some like old hymns that talk about dross, you know, but you sweep off the impurities and then you kind of refine and refine again. You have this process where you repeat it and you slowly work out the impurities of the metal until finally you have this pure, pure metal that's beautiful. You know, and I don't know if this is true, but in the church a lot, they say that the blacksmith will refine it over and over again until he can see his reflection you know, in the metal. That may be a cheesy preacher metaphor. I'm not sure if that's really true, but I love that picture either way. Um, that, that's what they do is they want to see their reflection because it's that pure. It's that much of a clear reflection because it's a pure metal. And that's what God does here. And that's a central theme in the Bible of what God does with suffering in our lives is that he uses suffering in our lives to purify us. He uses it to test us and to refine us. If you want to see this in a great illustration, one of the great uh, and really most famous verses in the Bible about this is Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, we know it really well, but it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, first off, this can be misinterpreted, that first off, this verse does not mean that bad things are really good things in disguise. Sometimes we can think wrongly about that with this verse. You know, think about Jesus weeping in the, at the tomb of Lazarus. That when his friend Lazarus died, Jesus was heartbroken. Jesus was sad. He was, he was actually even angry. The word that says he wept there actually is more of an angry weeping, not just a sad weeping. He was angry at what sin had done to the world, that he was angry at sin and death. He, it was not his desire at all. He wasn't calling death a good thing at all. But he was angry about it. So this verse doesn't mean that bad things are really good things in disguise, that death and sin and evil are just pure bad things. But this verse also doesn't mean that bad things happen so that something better can happen later, you know, that, that God will make up things to us later down the road. It doesn't mean that if we pray enough, God will make bad things go away. That's not what this verse says either. 
Because the truth is that God cares way more about our character than our comfort. All right, cares way more about our character than our comfort. And his definition of good is always way better than ours. That we'll say something is good when ultimately God has something even better for us in his eternal perspective. But this verse does mean that God works even bad things to produce two things in our lives. It means he works bad things to, number one, refine our character, to be more like Christ, and also to give us a greater appetite for eternity. I love the way the verse says it. It says, you know, for those who are called according to his purpose, that's kind of the eternal perspective, and it says for those who love God. And so suffering helps us refine our love for God, also helps us to have better eternal perspective, have a better appetite for eternity, those who are called according to his eternal purpose. So those are two things that God does to refine us. But this doesn't mean that we're always going to understand what God does in our lives. There's been many times in my life I've gone through some really hard things. And I've really wondered, like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Like, what purpose is happening in this? And God doesn't promise to give us answers to that. He hasn't even promised to give us answers to that 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Sometimes we won't even know to eternity why certain things happened. Uh, the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, is that for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That right now in this world, we see things through a mirror dimly. There's things that don't make sense because we're looking at things from a perspective of right now and not an eternal perspective. And it can be hard to understand and make sense of what God may be doing in life. But the truth is this, is that God will give you more than you can handle. Because the truth is this, he'll give you more than you can handle because he wants you to rely on him for all you're given. He wants you to rely on him to handle all the things that you're given. So he will give you more than you can handle. Because when you come to the end of yourself, when you realize you can't do anything else on your own, when you've come to a point of just being overwhelmed and you have nowhere to go when you're at the end of your rope, that's when God begins to do his best work in you. That's when he begins to do his best work in you. That's not a fun process by any means. I can attest to that. But when we come to the end of ourselves, when we finally give up control, when we finally come to God with open hands, that's when he has the best avenue to be able to do some amazing things in our life. Uh, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 12. He said in verses 9 and 10, this is God speaking to Paul. He said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And sometimes God has to allow things to happen in our lives to make us weak so that we can find our strength in him. So that in hard times, we can focus on what's true about God, not what's untrue about ourselves. And we focus on what's true about him, not, what, not what's false about us. The way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4 is this, 17 and 18. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And in that verse, you may think, man, like light and momentary affliction. Paul must not know what I've gone through. He must not know the things I've gone through. They, they in no way would be called light and momentary. And that's not what he's saying. He's not trying to downplay your suffering. I love the way that a pastor named Mitch Case says it. He says, Paul isn't trying to minimize your affliction. He's trying to maximize your perspective. He's not trying to minimize your suffering, all right, your affliction. He's trying to maximize your perspective. That when we're overwhelmed, when we're hurting, you know, we have to lift our eyes above our circumstances, and lift them to God. 
As the Psalms say, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, right? My help does not come from myself. My help cannot come from my circumstances. My help, my help has to come from the Lord, who's our only real comfort when everything falls apart. And we got to remember that somehow in God's wisdom and sovereignty, that three trillion, three billion years from now, that our suffering will seem so small compared to the eternal life that we have in Christ. That maybe in some way, three trillion years from now, that that suffering will even seem some way, a way that God made us better and made us love him more and even seemed, made eternity even better. That somehow in his wisdom, he can do that. He can use crooked sticks to make straight lines, even over billions and trillions of years. Because when we're given more than we can handle, we're gonna find the God who understands our suffering, and we're gonna find that because God is the God who has suffered himself. And we're gonna begin to wrap up with this. But God has suffered himself. I heard a pastor say recently that God doesn't answer the problem of suffering with explanation. He answers it with incarnation. He doesn't answer the problem of suffering with explanation. He answers it with the incarnation. And what I mean by that is that, that God cares so much about suffering that he sent his son Jesus into the world and he suffered himself. That Jesus came and lived a life here like we all have lived in many ways. He lived a life that experiences the pain and disappointment and brokenness of this world. He, he walked dirty streets in Jerusalem. And also, he suffered by taking on our sins on the cross. He suffered far more than we can imagine. That Jesus himself, he knows what it means to suffer. That he has been tempted in every way. He knows the pain that we have experienced in life. And you gotta consider that Jesus was fully God and fully man. So he experienced even the, the frailty and the pain of being a human being, even while still being God. We saw how he was stressed out even to the point of death. He knows what it means to be stressed to the max. But God used even Jesus' suffering. He used even the worst thing of Christ on the cross, which is really the worst thing to ever happen in the history of the world. He used the worst thing ever to bring about the best thing ever in the world, to bring about our salvation. That God, if he could use you know, that kind of thing, imagine what he could do for you. That if God used the worst thing that ever happened in the world to turn it to the best thing that ever happened in the world, imagine what he could do in your suffering right now. Imagine how he could take what's happening in your life, whatever you go through, and turn it into something beautiful and good ultimately. Doesn't mean it's gonna become easier even in his life. Doesn't mean he's gonna make it up to us somehow in life, but he can somehow in his sovereignty turn it into something better in eternity. I love the, word, the way that Charles Spurgeon says it, old pastor in England back in the day. Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. That even as we go through suffering, through trials, through hard things in life, that we can even learn to embrace those things, although they're not good in and of themselves at all, that we can learn to embrace those things as they drive us closer to Christ, as they drive us closer to him. So as we wrap up, one more thing. Because when, when God gives us more than we can handle, you know, it's always easy for us to isolate ourselves. And sometimes it's easy when we go through hard things to maybe kind of just want to, you know, box ourselves up, pull ourselves up, and not really want to talk about it with other people. We may go places, but not really want to be open and honest about the hard things that we're going through. But it's important to remember that, yes, when life is overwhelming, we have to go to the Lord. But if you're honest, sometimes when we're struggling, when we're suffering, the Lord can feel very far away. That you maybe want to see God, but he feels like he's distant. You feel like you're disconnected to him. And while we have the responsibility to seek out the Lord in suffering, many times it's hard to find the strength on your own. So as we wrap up, I want to encourage you to know that while we're talking about God giving us more than we can handle to test us and strengthen us, we've got to remember that we're never meant to do this alone, that we need each other in hardships, that when we comfort each other in our struggles, 
when we comfort each other, when we're overwhelmed, that in many ways we become the embodied presence of the Holy Spirit in people's lives as we're able to comfort them and be a tool, a vessel that God uses to comfort them. I think about that story in Mark 2. You have the, the cripple man who wants to go see Jesus, but he can't because he's crippled. And so they you know, carry him to the house and they like go up the, the stairs and they open up the roof. And it's like a fun Sunday school story, you know, but they do this kind of really cool thing to lower him into the house so you can see Jesus. I always wonder how awkward that was to have the guy like, like be slowly lowered like right in front of Jesus' face and like be looking at him. You know, that'd be kind of weird. But, you know, I love that story because it, it reminds me so much of my need sometimes for people to carry me to Jesus. That sometimes when we're just, man, spiritually paralyzed and we were struggling, we need someone to preach the gospel to us. We need, we need friends who will carry us to Christ when we're just struggling. When we need, you know, someone to push us toward him in a way that we can't do on our own. When we're just spiritually exhausted, when we're broken, when we're, when we're just empty, you need friends in your life who will carry you to Jesus in the ways that those guys carried their friend to Jesus. So maybe this week you need to check in on somebody you know that's struggling. A lot of people right now are distressed and overwhelmed. Maybe you need to check on some people you haven't talked to in a bit. Ask some real open questions like, hey man, how you doing? Like really, how are you doing? Not just kind of, you're doing good, but like really, how are you doing right now? That, that question can have a lot of weight if you really want an answer, you know, and not just a kind of surface level thing, all right? But as we close up and we discuss, I know I've been a little bit longer tonight, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but just, I want to say, if you never put your faith in Christ, if this whole thing about Christ suffering for you is new, haven't heard this before, or if you realize that you never really put your faith in Jesus, you've maybe grown up in church for a long time, but never really started a real relationship with him, I'd love to talk to you about that. We have a lot of people at these tables that would love to talk to you more about that. Just ask somebody. I would love to talk to you. If you're not comfortable with me, talk to someone else you know better here. They would love to share um, about how you can know Jesus truly tonight and find eternal life. So, But with that, I want to pray for us. And then I've got three questions on the sheet there for you. I want to give you guys about 10 minutes to discuss. And then uh, we'll come back up and we'll dismiss. Okay? So let me pray for us. We'll do that. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that no suffering is wasted in our life, that, that no moment in our life is truly wasted if we know you and you are truly as sovereign as you are, that you are using the mundane, you're using the difficult, you're using everything, Lord, to refine us, to make us more like Christ and using us, using those things to give us a greater appetite for eternity, to give us a greater, greater craving for eternity with you. And so, Lord, I pray tonight as these students think through issues of temptation, trial, trouble, suffering, all these things that they could see and maybe even bury some truths into their heart tonight, right now, that will be vital lifelines for them in weeks, months, even years ahead when they face the inevitable sufferings in life that we all face. So I pray tonight that you would do a great work in people's hearts for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.